Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit to us now so that our hearts are blameless towards your decrees and your ways. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our series in the book of Joel and we've been seeing the absolute devastation that has been brought upon the land of Israel uh, by God. Uh, he has used locusts to come in and eat everything that is edible in the land uh, for all the plants, the trees, the fruit that was on the trees. And we also saw last week that he, there was some sort of fire had come and ravaged the land as well. It wasn't just locusts that were coming through and destroying everything, that some fire had broken out and destroyed much of Israel as well. And what else did we see? Well, last week we saw that the Israelites were to turn to God, that they were to turn to God, that they were to rend their hearts, turn to God and ask the Lord to take away their suffering and bless them instead of cursing them as he's been doing with the locusts and the fire. But what's the best reason that the Israelites can give to God as to why he should alleviate their sufferings, why he should end their sufferings and show mercy to them and bless them? Would it be more repentance? Is that how they are to get God to bless them, is to repent even more, to rend their hearts even more, to show their repentance even more by the way that they dress in sackcloth, by the way that they fast from food, by their weeping? Do they need to cry more tears in order for God to bless them? What should they do in order for God to bless them? What would be the best way to come before God and ask him to show mercy to them? Is it by pointing out their great repentance to him? No, we see here in the passage that we're looking at this morning that the best thing that they can go to God for, and for mercy, the reason that they should give God why he should show mercy to them is for his own glory. That is the best reason that they can give to God. How do we know this? Well, we see it in verse 17, where Joel instructs the people, or particularly the priests, how to pray that the people of God are to pray a particular prayer that is given in verse 17. Look with me, it says in verse 17, Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar. Let them say, and here's the prayer, Spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? What is happening amongst the nations as Israel is suffering with plagues of locusts one after another that are destroying anything that the previous locusts had eaten and fire is ravaging the land? What is happening amongst the other nations outside of Israel? They're mocking the people of Israel and they're mocking the God of Israel. They're insulting the God of Israel. They're scorning him and attacking him. And they, we can see this in the text. It says, Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. And why should the people say, and why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? When they make this statement, the peoples of the other nations around Israel, as they look at the suffering, the pain of the Israelites, and say, Where is their God? They're attacking God himself. What are they attacking about God? Well, they're attacking at least we would say his goodness and his mercy and his grace to his people. As his people are suffering and the land of Israel was known as the people of Yahweh, the people of Jehovah, the people of the Lord, as they're suffering, they're saying, where is their God? At least he's not a God of goodness and mercy because you see the suffering of God's people. They're also attacking another of God's attributes. What attribute would they be attacking? His power. Maybe the God of Israel 
He's up in heaven and he's wanting to show grace and love to his people, but he lacks the power to do so. It's like his arms are tied behind his back, that another God is superior to the God of Israel and preventing him from acting. And so when they say, where is their God? Where is the God of Israel? They're saying, well, he's certainly not a powerful God, their God. And they're actually attacking also his very existence. What is the name of the God of Israel? I am. He declares it by his name, I am. And when the nations around Israel look at Israel and see them suffering, they're saying, his name really should be I am not. Because where is he? He's not there, clearly in that nation, or he's not a loving God, or he's not a powerful God, the God of Israel. And so they're attacking God's honour. That is what is at stake. As Israel suffers, what is at stake? It is God's honour, God's glory. And we see this kind of prayer given again and again in the scriptures. As the people of Israel suffer, that God's people will raise with God in prayer the subject of their suffering in light of his glory and how it is being tarnished by their suffering. And therefore they should be shown mercy so that God's name would be honoured and not dishonoured. We saw it even in the opening psalm that we had this morning. Psalm 79, verse 9, which we heard when we opened the service. It says, help us, O God, our Saviour. Israelites are calling out for God. Help us, God, our Saviour. Why? Verse 9, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and forgive us, forgive our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Before our eyes, make known among the nations that you avenge the outpoured blood of your servants. It's a common theme we see in Scripture, as we see there in Psalm 79. We see it here in Joel chapter 2, that when God's people are suffering, God's name is tarnished by the nations. And therefore, God's people should come to him and ask for mercy on the basis of his namesake. Not for their namesake, but for the namesake of God. And does such prayer work? As we come to God and ask him for mercy, as we're going through suffering so that his name is not tarnished? Well, Joel tells us that the answer is yes, that God hears such prayers and then acts. Look with me at verse 18. After the priests have been told to pray, the prayer of verse 17, what do we read in verse 18? Then the Lord will be jealous. Zealous is another translation. Jealous for his land and take pity on his people. He will take pity on them. And what will he do in his pity as he looks at his people suffering? Well, verse 19 says, The Lord will reply to them, to the people of Israel, I am sending you grain, new wine and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. God hears the prayer of the Israelites. Your name is being taken as a byword. Reproach is coming on your name because of the suffering of your people. And God hears and is zealous and he promises that he will abundantly bless them. He will satisfy them with food. And never again will they, will they be put to shame amongst the nations. And we see this strategy work. In the Bible, we see in the scriptures as people of God suffer, they cry out to God for help on the basis of his name, on the basis of his glory, and then God immensely helps them. And one of the great examples of this is in Isaiah 
in the book of Isaiah. It's also recounted in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. And I wanted to read a section of it out to you this morning. So I invite you now to turn with me to Isaiah 37. So turn back from Joel, a few books. It's about a couple hundred pages in your Bibles, to page 710. I'm actually going to read a fair slab of this, so good for you to turn there now. Uh, in Isaiah 36, uh, so we have much of, you have Isaiah's prophecies uh, from chapter 1 through to verse 35, uh, and then there's this narrative that is picked up in chapter 36, and it comes as King Hezekiah, who was a contemporary of Isaiah, has had the king of Assyria, a guy called Sennacherib, he has come and he has taken over many of the Israelite towns, the fortified cities of Judah, and captured them. And he arrives at Jerusalem itself. His army arrives at Jerusalem. And he has basically got some things to say to Hezekiah. You can read other things that he says in chapter 36, but we'll pick it up at chapter 37, verse 9. Chapter 37, verse 9. Page 711. It says, Now Sennacherib, that's the king of Assyria, received a report that Terhakar, the Cushite king of Egypt, was marching out to fight against him. When he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah with this word. So Hezekiah is the king of Judah, Sennacherib is the king of Assyria, and Hezekiah may, he's, he's th- uh, Sennacherib is thinking that Hezekiah thinks, oh, well, if the king of Egypt is sending out some troops, I'm going to be okay. But Sennacherib has a word for Hezekiah. And what does he say in verse 10? Say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says, Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my forefathers deliver them? The gods of Gozan, Haran, Resef, and the people of Eden who are in Tel Asar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Seravaim, or Hena, or Ivva? Here we see Sennacherib insulting the gods of the nations that he's destroyed, but also insulting the God of Israel. Your God won't save you. Look at the other gods of the other nations. They haven't been able to save you. This is the message that he sends to King Hezekiah. And what does Hezekiah do? Well, we pick it up at verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these peoples and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. See what Hezekiah is doing there? He's praying to God speaking about how God's name is being insulted by this person and asking God to act accordingly. And what do we read happens? Verse 21. Then Isaiah, son of Amoz, sent a message to Hezekiah. 
This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word the Lord has spoken against him. The virgin daughter of Zion despises and mocks you. The daughter of Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. Who is it you have insulted and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have heaped insults on the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I have ascended the heights of the mountains, the utmost heights of Lebanon. I have cut down its tallest cedars, the choicest of its pines. I have reached its remotest heights, the finest of its forests. I have dug wells in foreign lands and drunk the water there. With the soles of my feet I have dried up all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard? Long ago I ordained it. In the days of old I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. Their people, drained of power, are dismayed and put to shame. They are like plants in the field, like tender green shoots, like grass sprouting on the roof, scorched before it grows up. This is what the God of Israel says to Sennacherib, verse 28, But I know where you stay, and when you come and go, and how you rage against me. Because you rage against me and because your insolence has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will make you return by the way you came. This will be the sign for you, O Hezekiah. This is the message that the Lord has for Hezekiah. This year you will eat what grows by itself and the second year what springs from that. But in the third year sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Once more, a remnant of the house of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return." He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and the sake of David, my servant. The Lord promises that he will destroy the king of Assyria and save the people of Israel for his sake. And what happens? The very next verse, verse 36. Look with me now. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshipping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons Adramalek and Sharazer cut him down with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Eshadon, his son, succeeded him as king. What do we see in this passage? Well, we see Israel suffering. We see fortified city after fortified city being destroyed by an Assyrian army. What else do we see? We see foreigners mocking the God of Israel, coming into the land of Israel and mocking his people, but also their God. And what else do we see? We see an Israelite coming before God in prayer, and asking God to defend 
his honour. Asking God to defend his honour. And then what do we see? We see God defending his honour. Gloriously. Powerfully. In one night destroying 185,000 men of an opposing army. This is the pattern we see in scripture. We see it again and again. We see the same pattern with the Lord Jesus too. What do we see at the cross? We see people mocking the Lord Jesus as he is suffering. We see the great suffering of God's son and people mocking him as he suffers. We read it before in Matthew 27, verse 41. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. They're mocking Jesus, but they're also mocking God as the God of Jesus Christ. He trusts in him. Let's see if God will help him. They're mocking God. And what did Christ do? Well, he prayed to God. As he hung there on the cross, he prayed. We read in Matthew 27, verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's quoting Psalm 22. He's wanting the people to hear that his thoughts at that time are the thoughts of Psalm 22. Not just the opening phrase, but the whole of that psalm applies to him as he's hanging there on the cross. And if you want to this afternoon, read through it, and you'll see the many links to Christ at the cross in Psalm 22. And what is included in that psalm? There's a connection to the suffering of his servant and the praise that comes to God. In Psalm 22, verse 23, we read, You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. As Jesus hangs on the cross and he quotes Psalm 22, he's including these verses in the thought of his prayer that his salvation is linked to the glory of God and encouraging people to praise God as a result of the salvation that was to come to him. But was Jesus saved from his pain? Yes, he was. He was raised to life never to suffer again. Raised to life in a glorious resurrection body. I think it's a powerful act that God used to save the Israelites in the time of Hezekiah by putting to death 185,000 people. Yes, powerful act. But here we see in the New Testament an even greater act as a man comes to life, as a man is raised to life. And why? For the glory of God. For the glory of God. That is why Christ Jesus was raised to life. We read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 and following, Therefore God exalted him, exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. That is why God raised Jesus. That is why he avenged his suffering there at the cross by raising him from the dead so that every knee would bow before him. And so as we look at Joel chapter 2, we look at Isaiah and the incident that happened between Sennacherib and Hezekiah, and as we look at the Lord Jesus Christ and his suffering... 
Shouldn't we follow the same pattern today? Shouldn't we follow the same pattern today when we suffer and come to God for mercy? When we as God's people suffer terrible disasters or illness or pain, as we grieve the death of loved ones, when we suffer in these ways and unbelievers begin to mock us, mock us for being Christians despite the suffering that we're experiencing. They see the pain we experience. They see the grief that is in our hearts. And they say, how can you still follow God? Where is your God now? You go Sunday after Sunday and worship him, and then he brings this upon you. Where is he now? Why would you bother being a Christian now? What should we pray in times like that? Well, we should learn from Joel chapter 2, verse 17, as to what we should pray. He instructs the priest to pray there, and we as priests of God now, priesthood of believers, we can pray that same prayer. Joel chapter 2, verse 17. Turn back with me there now, page 902. Joel chapter 2, verse 17. This is what we should pray. Spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? This is what we should pray. So do you pray this? Do you pray this kind of prayer when you're coming to God for mercy in your pain? Do you come to God and ask for his mercy because of his promises and his attributes and for his honour? Do you pray for your namesake, O God? Show us mercy. As you suffer, is there actually something in your heart that is more concerned about the suffering of God's name than your suffering? That's what should be the greatest concern to us when we suffer. Is not that we are suffering per se. Of course we should be concerned about it. But the greater concern would be that God's name is mocked by unbelievers as we suffer. That God's name is suffering is our greatest concern. And so therefore we pray to God, for your name's sake, show us mercy, O God. Do you pray that kind of prayer? If the answer is yes, then what will happen? What will happen if we pray such prayers of mercy for God's glory? Well, verses 18 and 19, we can take to us as well. As we take the verse 17 as to what we should pray, then verse 18 and 19 apply to us as well. Then the Lord will be jealous for his land and take pity on his people. The Lord will reply to them, I am sending you grain, new wine and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. Really, will God act in this way for his people? If we come to him and ask for his namesake, show us mercy, O God. Of course he will. Of course he will. Consider who he is and what we are as we are experiencing pain and suffering in this world and our human frailty. What are we like? We're like an infant crying out to God. An infant that is helpless, that is naked and shivering, hungry and with a dirty nappy and a sickly cough. We are completely helpless before God. That is what the picture should be of us in our minds. And then what good, loving, gracious, powerful father would stand by and not help the cry of his little infant 
as it's there in all its helplessness, in all its sickness, in all its filth, what good father would stand by and not act to help his people? So of course God will bless us abundantly if we cry out to him because his name is at stake as a good father if he leaves us in that awful state that we are in. God will bless us and defend his glory. He may do so now in by ending our suffering and pain that we're crying out because of. But he will definitely end that. When? When Christ returns and raises us from the dead, God's promises will be fulfilled. This description that is given in verse 19, this is heaven. And the following verses, which, Lord willing, we may unpack in further weeks, this is heaven. Verse 19, I am sending you grain, new wine and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. We will be satisfied fully in heaven and never an object of scorn to the nations. So in your pain, I encourage you, pray for mercy for God's namesake and pray, come, Lord Jesus, come, because that is when his promises will be fulfilled and we will be shown to be his people completely and utterly and his name will be glorified in a way that has not been seen yet as the Lord Jesus comes to restore his people to his heavenly kingdom, which he will create. But note that we can only pray this prayer of verse 17 and then expect God to act if we are God's children through repentance by the Holy Spirit. That has come before this, the encouragement to rend our hearts, to come before God, to return to God, to not turn away from God, but to turn to God. Why can we only pray this prayer if we're his children? Well, a father has no need to defend his honour if children that are not his are suffering. He defends his honour as the father of his children when they suffer. But he has no need to defend his honour when the children of another father suffer. If God defends his honour by disciplining his children when they behave badly, how much more will God allow pain to come to sinners who are children of the devil, if he will allow pain into our lives as a disciplined reaction, he will allow pain to come to his children. How much more will he allow pain to come to the children of Satan? And so it's only if we are repentant and children of God that we can pray this prayer. His honour is not at stake for those who are not his. His honour is only at stake for those who are his. And so if you've never repented of your sins, I encourage you to do it now. Because one day you may stop saying, where is your God? Why? One day you will stop saying, where is your God? Why? Because you'll be face to face with him on his judgment throne. You'll no longer be saying, where is he? He'll be right before you judging you for your sin and your rebellion against him all your life. I encourage you, repent now before it is too late. Cash in on God's promise that all who come to him in repentance now are his children 
forgiven by the precious blood of Jesus Christ shed so many years ago for your sins so that you would not have to suffer for eternity, that Christ has suffered in your place. Repent now. Won't you enjoy with the rest of the children of God knowing that God is our Father and he is jealous for his honour and so he will save all his children from whatever pain, from whatever trial they're suffering in this world. He will save them. Won't you rejoice that one day you too, with the rest of the family of God, will be raised from the dead to escape all pain, to escape death itself for all of eternity. Let's come before God in prayer. Let's speak with him now. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we praise you as God who is good and powerful. We ask that you would forgive us for our sins by Christ's blood and take away our suffering so that you are not a byword among unbelievers. We ask that the Lord Jesus would come soon. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come, so that your name is exalted and no longer slandered by the nations. And Lord, if there is anyone here who is not yours, who continues to ask, where is the God of Israel? O oh Lord, grant them repentance now for your name's sake. And we pray this in Christ's name now. Amen.